Hi everybody, welcome to episode two of Great Works, aka an endless search for the greatest work of art. I'm Jess. And I'm Tay. And this is a podcast about everything and anything. More specifically, it's a podcast where each episode we take it in turns to convince the other why our chosen topic is, without a doubt, the single greatest work of art. We can talk about anything, a film, a book, a game, a song, and yes, even actual art. By the end of the episode, we'll either agree that your thing is a masterpiece or it will be in the bin. Let's get started. Right, first things first, Jess. Before we get into this episode, I think we should do a little toast to a successful first episode out there in the wild. By the time you're hearing this, hopefully, you know, you would have listened to episode one. So I don't if know about not, you. If not, go back and watch it. Go back and listen to it because yeah. it was a cracker. Yeah, how did you think it went? Oh, let's, let's drink to it. Yeah, I'm just going to open my beer to drink to episode one. What are you drinking, Jess? I am drinking a Mosaic Pale Ale, Carmen Mosaic Pale, by uh, Carnival, which is in Liverpool. Nice. Have um, you had it before? I have not had it before. Okay. Well, you have to let us know. One of those those classic beer deliveries that I probably can't mention because I don't want to do free advertising for them. <laughs> but um... <laughs> Bold of you to assume would ever be doing paid advertising for them, so don't want to throw them a free bone. <laughs> exactly but yes i got i get those beer deliveries and yeah it's enjoyable just just trying new new things awesome i'm drinking a pomegranate flavored soju uh, the brand is uh good day soju i'm not afraid to give them a free shout out uh which i bought in london from my trip last week uh so yeah cheers cheers jess cheers tay so how did you find the experience for recording the first episode? Were you worried presenting your work of art? Were you pleased that it made it in? It was a lot of fun. And yeah, I was completely convinced by my own argument <laughs> and by yours. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's still in the running. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what your work of art is today and see if it could possibly compare. Well... I mean, it is it is a lofty target to hit. But um, yeah, so as I mentioned last, well, not last week, two weeks ago, my chosen topic for this episode was going to be one of two Simpsons episodes. Um, and I said at the time it was either going to be Lisa's substitute or uh, Bart sells his soul. So I went back kind of almost immediately after recording, actually, and uh, watched Lisa's substitute. Immediately remembered why I loved it. And then the following day, I watched Bart Sells His Soul. Immediately remembered why I loved it. I thought I thought my choice would be a lot easier, but um, no, it, it it took a little bit of deliberation. But I finally did land on uh, Lisa's Substitute, episode nineteen of the second season of The Simpsons. Um, and then Jess, I sent it your way. And I think you had a chance to watch it earlier this week. Yeah, yeah, I watched it. Um, brings me back those classic early seasons of The Simpsons. Um, I love it. Um, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed rewatching it, and I didn't realize how much of it I remembered. That kind of episode, those early episodes, are just ingrained in your in your mind, and you don't even realize that you remember all of the quotes from it. Oh, it's a banger! Um, so this one, the, the 
the reason I chose it is partially because of that. Like, it's one of those classic after schools, like Channel 4, 6 o'clock, <laughs> or was it 6.30 episodes? It was always on. Um, and I think a part of that is probably because of just, like, the sheer star power in the in an early episode. I will come on to that in a lot more detail. But, yeah, Jess, let's, let's just touch on that. Let's just jump in there. For anyone who has been living under a rock for the past 30 years and doesn't know what The Simpsons is. Um, Jess, do you want to tell us a little bit about, about the show and kind of your experience with it and how you came to kind of start watching it? Yeah, so, I mean, I was going to ask you how long you've been a fan of The Simpsons, but I know you're like a super fan of The Simpsons. Um, I mean, it's it's a classic cartoon. Um, it's about family life um, with the classic characters, Homer, Marge, Bart and Lisa, and then all the other people who live in, in Springfield. And, I mean, everyone's seen The Simpsons. I think it was one of those early cartoons that um, was a little bit, a little bit rude. I mean, not even that rude. I mean, nothing compared to like Family Guy or anything today. But when it was first aired, it was a little bit different. It wasn't it was like an adult's cartoon. And that was a little bit different. Um, but you're right. It's got you know, I watched it all throughout my childhood. Uh, it was always on after school, as you say, at six o'clock. So, yeah, I've seen many, many episodes of The Simpsons. And there are loads of loads of series. I mean, Tay, you'll know better than me. How many how many seasons are we on now? I think it's literally 33 now. It's the longest running, uh, at least American, like scripted TV show of all time. Uh, I recently found out there's like a German animated show, which has something insane, like in the thousands and thousands of episodes, but just Simpsons can't quite hold a candle to that yet, but just give it time. But yeah, it's safe to say, you know, it's been around for a while. And my experience is, is very, very similar. Uh, so I remember running home from school, shoveling dinner into my mouth, just to be ready to like sit in front of the TV and be ready for that. Uh, the, the Simpsons and Fresh Prince double bill uh, on Channel 4. And that was like most of my weeknights. And then later in the, you know, anyone else in the UK around kind of early 2000s, you'll know the like quadruple bill uh, Simpsons on Sky One, if you were lucky enough to have that, like at some point my family got Sky and it was just like eight episodes of Simpsons back to back to back. And that was like heaven for me. So yeah, growing up, Simpsons, a huge part of my childhood. I have a massive fondness for the early seasons. So anything season one through to 10 and a couple of episodes from kind of like up to season 13, 14 is really, you know, the, the the pinnacle for me. There is that sweet spot, like the golden age, many people consider like season five through to eight, nine, where the really- That would be my my favorite yeah, set that's, of episodes. That's kind of where the core uh, the writer's team, you know, were, were kind of at, at, at their peak. Um, and, you know, Simpsons going st strong still today. A lot of people, think it took a major dip around kind of the early 20th, 20th season. But uh, Jess, you you know, recently you were telling me about an episode that you just happened to catch and, you know, it, it is still good, but nothing compares to this episode, Jess. Let me tell you. So go on. Why don't you tell me about this episode? Tell me a little bit about... Um, why don't you first just tell us what the plot is? Lisa Substitute, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, like most, if not all, Simpsons episodes follow a very simple plot structure. There's an A plot and a B plot, right? Uh, in It's actually 
quite surprising how much you can pack into 24 minutes. And The Simpsons managed to pack in two whole plot lines every episode. So the A plot uh, for Lisa Substitute is essentially that Miss Hoover has, um, Lisa's teacher, second grade teacher, Miss Hoover, has to take medical leave due to what she thinks is Lyme disease. Uh, so obviously when your teacher's out, you have a substitute teacher. And in this case, that substitute teacher is a chap called Mr. Bergstrom. Um, Mr. Bergstrom is kind of the quintessential inspiring teacher. You know, we, we'll come on to why I think this is a, a really, an episode that really resonates with me and for kind of uh, that anyone can uh, can empathize with Lisa's position here. But essentially, Mr. Bergstrom takes Lisa under his wing, nurtures her uh, and, and, and her interest in learning. Um, and then when Miss Hoover does eventually return to class, Lisa is devastated to find out that she's lost her you know, most positive adult role model in her life. Um, eventually, there's, there's, there's kind of ups and downs in the plot. There's, there's uh, the Homer comes into it and Homer and Mr. Bergstrom relationship is quite interesting as well as there's that clash of different role models in Lisa's life. Um, but I think the kind of main takeaway from that A plot is that Mr. Bergstrom helps Lisa to see the positive role models that she has in her life, you know, within her family and kind of an, an extended family, um, including Homer, and, and shows her that, you know, that, that she can look for good and intelligence in people that she maybe was writing off. And quite central to that is, is Bart in this episode. You know, I, th I think there's quite a good line where uh, we'll come on to it, but, but Bart's plot is essentially that he's running for class president. And I have a lot I want to say about this in relation to a certain 2016 presidential bid in the US. But uh, uh, Lisa has a quote, something like, oh, you'll never... That you'll never go wrong appealing to the lowest common denominator and and mr bergstrom helps her see like that's that's not the case and why 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 you know why why she shouldn't be so hard on her family and, that, and that's really a kind of a strong hallmark of a lot of the early lisa episodes uh all the way up to kind of like lisa the vegetarian which i don't i'm sure you've seen that jess as well you know it's 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 a lot of her arcs are about her connecting with her family, who she feels really separated from and isolated from in a lot of ways. And I think Mr. Bergstrom's a fantastic character, uh, but the way that the A plot and the B plot like kind of play off each other, give a balance of heartfelt emotion and comedy and come together at the end in this really climactic ending scene, I think makes this, in my opinion, the best possible version of a 22-minute animated show, right? I think it is the greatest work of art because it is extremely compelling and achieves so, so much in the limitations that the format offers. I'm, you know, I'm under no delusion that this isn't, this isn't, I don't know, The Last Supper by Da Vinci. Like, I know that, but it is absolutely 100% a great work of art because of what it accomplishes. I, I think you raised some really interesting points. There's some things I'd like to kind of go back to actually on what you were saying about Lisa's traditional story arcs, about her um, kind of uh, developing roles, sorry, developing relationships with her family. And you mentioned Bart and you mentioned Homer and how she has that opinion of her dad and of her, of her brother. But even with Marge, she's telling Marge, uh, there's a scene where she's going up the stairs following Marge as she's doing like chores and housework and saying, oh, and then, you know, 
when he smiled, you can see these two teeth and, you know, he told this story and, and he cried at the end and he, she's just gushing over Mr. Bergstrom like a, a childhood crush. And Marge keeps on saying, that's how I feel about your father. That's how I feel about your father. And Lisa gets really irritated and annoyed and saying, stop saying that. Um, but even that's the kind of alienation that, that her mum is saying that she has similar feelings about the man she loves and the man she marries. And Lisa just can't accept that because she feels so different. Um yeah, it, it it is one of Lisa's kind of biggest character flaws is that despite her good nature and her, and her kind-heartedness, she does have like an underlying layer of arrogance because she does, you know, perceive herself as as more intelligent than the members of her family. And yeah, it, it's, it is a really interesting point because I'm sure, you know, the other aspect I totally forgot to mention is that not only does Lisa see Mr. Bergstrom as a role model, she has a crush on him, right? And Jess, I don't know, like, if you ever had a crush on a teacher at school? Like, I know, definitely, like, I, I, I had a crush on someone. It feels someone. like a rite of passage. I mean, yeah. all kids have crushes on their teachers at some point. Exactly. And for Lisa, it's kind of like, you know, no one has felt this way. She's an eight-year-old, so she can't possibly fathom that her parents have ever felt, felt this way. This must be a totally unique thing to her, and no one can quite understand. And it's just mirroring that disconnect again. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've got, a, I do have a couple more thoughts on like the development of Lisa. But one thing I just wanted to ask you just to sort of like bring it back to thinking about why you think this is the greatest work of art. Um, I suppose for me, when you first suggest this episode, you know, like there's the argument to demonstrate why you think this is the best Simpsons episode. Sure. But how can you say that this is the greatest work of art? Like in a broader sense, I sort of wanted to know, do you see this episode as having like cultural significance? to like our generation or in a wider scale? I think it it stands out to me as, I don't know if it's the best Simpsons episode, right? Like I I, I think I'd be hard pressed to dethrone um, You Only Move Twice, which is the episode with Hank Scorpio, which is you know widely regarded as one of the best. And I, and I do love that one. But Lots I think- Lots of good memes from that one. Yeah, and I think that one is just, it's just like a laugh a minute, right? And it's just got one of the most, incredible like for you know single appearance characters ever and it's just it's just so funny like from start to finish i think this is a great work of art and kind of culturally relevant because it does so much more than it's than it's like medium would imply it can right so like the simpsons right it's a sitcom 24 minutes you turn it on like it's 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 not highbrow art it's 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 a cartoon and especially especially in 1991 right so you got to think the simpsons wasn't like what it is now it was in its it, it had a series of shorts uh, on the tracy Ullman show and then uh it had a first season commissioned and by all accounts like that did pretty well but if you go back to it like a lot of it is quite rough right the the, the, the writers are finding their feet and this comes quite late on um, in in season two. It's episode nineteen, but it but that doesn't always kind of tell you about the production of it. But this was actually a lengthier production, and part of it was because of you know the the, the actor uh, who they got in to play Mr. Bergstrom. But you know this was I feel like uh, the first real big guest star they had, um, and it was the first one where they were really writing to writing for a massive audience, right? I think is this is the one where the writer's team were clicking, like they were firing on all cylinders, both from a comedic perspective and for delivering actually like a compelling emotional story, right? I think the plot 
Lisa's plot is something that absolutely anyone can resonate with, right? Um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you were homeschooled and never had a teacher that you loved, right? You've had someone like a Mr. Bergstrom in your life. And I think this episode in 24 minutes, again, captures like that, that, that early school experience so well from the point of, um, you know, a teacher you perhaps are a bit disillusioned with, like when Miss Hoover comes in, like very first scene of the episode, and she's crying, Lisa's like, oh God, she's someone's broke up with her again, right? She's at this point where Miss Hoover is just like, you know, almost silly to her, right? She doesn't see her as a, as a compelling kind of like uh, educator. Um, then there's Mr. Bergstrom, who's kind of like at the opposite end, and he's, he's the absolute, absolute pinnacle. Lisa like really looks up to him. And then you also have the other side of, of the school experience, right? With Bart and the teacher who you don't get along with and who, who probably does secretly have a sore spot for you. But you, if you are like a bit of more of a class clown, uh, a bit more of a troublemaker, you still have something in this episode that ties you back to kind of your own school experience with Bart. I, I, just, I just think it's such a fleshed out, like, incredible piece of like it almost environmental storytelling um in in yeah. such a short period of time like i don't know about you but i feel like i'm i'm in that like was it yeah. second grade or fourth grade class yeah no you're, you're totally right and yeah the way you said that you know they capture that in a really short amount of time like the sort of the montage of things that mr bergstrom teaches lisa is quite small but in all of those he demonstrates how he has respect for the children you know he doesn't take himself very seriously there's a, a note gets passed around um making fun of him and he says oh i really like this this is you know can i keep this because it was a drawing of me and you know he he plays the guitar and he's a bit different and yeah it sort of it's it really builds that that image in a very quick quick like quick way um one thing i wanted to to bring up was you said you know it's all about the substitute teacher it's all about mr bergstrom so this is one of the first or perhaps the first um, sort of star cameos in The Simpsons. Is that right? So um, Mr. Bergstrom is played by Dustin Hoffman. And do you want to give us a little bit more information about that? Eh? I would love to. Yeah. So again, how do I approach this? Like The Simpsons, again, in 1991 was not what it is today, right? So now everyone and their dog has been on The Simpsons. Um, we've had a whole host of you know, cameos and guest stars. It's, it's almost a rite of passage. If you're a big enough star, you'll be invited to do either, you know, you'll either voice yourself on The Simpsons, or if you're really a huge star, then they'll actually write you a new character. At the time, this was not the case. So I think that I, I'm, I can't believe I'm drawing a blank on this, but in season two, there is another pretty big guest star um, I, I forget who it is, but it still doesn't hold a candle to Dustin Hoffman. So, Jess, I don't know how big of a Dustin Hoffman fan you are, but I, I was pretty huge, like, going into this. Wow. I, I mean, I have, you know, one point, which one amazing reference, which I really loved. Dustin Hoffman was in The Graduate. Yes, he was. And there's a really great scene where... Um, Mrs. Krabappel, who is uh, Bart's teacher, whose character is very like, you know, she's broken up with Mr. Krabappel and she's, you know, she's always a little bit like, um, it's a kind of a horrible impression of this kind of like spent woman. She's always sort of smoking and a little bit sleazy yeah. and a little bit like hitting on a lot of men and stuff. 
Um, I feel a bit sorry for that uh, characterization of her. Um, but she she sits in front of him and she does the classic pose with her leg up on the desk, like in The Graduate, like with Mrs. Robinson. Um, and he uses the line that he says to Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate, except Mrs. Krabappel instead. Um, is it like, uh, you're trying to seduce me, Mrs. Robinson? No, um, Mrs. Krabappel, you're trying to seduce me. Yeah. So I love that reference, and I thought that was, you know, that's the kind of thing that they do when they have cameos. They do make those sorts of references, and that I loved that. It made me laugh, um, and I, I really liked that. But beyond that, um, I, you know, I, I know the name Dustin Hoffman. And I've seen a couple of things he's in, but I'm not, I'm not like a super fan or anything. Right? Yes. So, so, I have the feeling that therefore you are. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't call myself a super fan. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a. I'm an admirer. Like, I think The Graduate is his best film. It's my favorite film from him. It's one of my favorite films of all time. So yeah, like that cameo, I guess that callback rather, definitely does tick a box for me. And it's like, that's probably something that elevates this episode. Um, but the point I want to make is that obviously The Graduate, Dustin Hoffman's uh, breakout hit, uh, he went on to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actor off the back of The Graduate um, in, in, what was it, 1967, I think. And between then and the time this episode came out, he was a, he was uh, nominated for a further five uh, Best Actor nominations in the Oscars, and he won them twice. So this is a two-time Oscar winner coming on to do a relatively unproven, relatively unknown animated show. That's my cat. Can you hear that? Sorry, one second. So if you're enjoying the silence... Tay's cat, Tay's new kitten, who is called Monty, who might even be named after Monty Burns from The Simpsons, is being mischievous. We apologise for that short break. That was just Tay seeing to his new kitten that was... He's a handful. Uh, interesting fact for all you Simpsons fans, his name is Monty. Not specifically named after Montgomery Burns, but, you know... We like to say this sometimes. So where was I? Well, <laughs> I think well, I was were, saying. Yeah, go on. Well, you go. were off with your headphones off, trying to look after your cat. I, I've already told the listeners that he's secretly named after Monty Burns, so you know you can deny it. But well, great minds think alike. Um, if you told them, I just told them again. So I think I was saying that Dustin Hoffman at this time had been nominated for six Academy Awards for Best Actor, and he'd won two. So he was a pretty big deal. So it was kind of an unprecedented thing for him to come onto, uh, uh, like I say, a relatively unknown and unproven animated show. Um, in fact, it was uh, kind of seen as, as, as not the, the, the best move by maybe some of his people. So I guess I don't know if you know this, but he originally was credited as uh, a, a, under a pseudonym in the episode. So no one actually oh, for a while that. knew that Dustin Hoffman had featured in this episode. He was... Uh, billed as uh, a Sametic, uh, which is a play on words for Semitic. <laughs> well, okay, well, that's something we need to talk about. But but as if no one would know, his voice is quite distinct and he makes graduate references. And are there other references in there that I haven't picked up on? I mean, Mr. Bergstrom looks like him, <laughs> but that's about it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think it was maybe a bit of a wink. Um... In fact, I think there is a really digging deep in Simpsons knowledge here, but there is an episode at some point where Lisa makes an offhand comment about like a film starring Dustin Hoffman saying, 
oh, he appeared in it under a pseudonym when they make like a reference to it. in season much ah. later seasons, like closer to season ten, which is a which is a good one. But I can't remember what episode that is. Um, obviously, Semitic referring to Semitic and, and and nod to Dustin Hoffman's kind of Jewish faith and Mr. Bergstrom's Jewish faith as well. Uh, which is a running a running thing keeps them being brought up just yeah. constantly. Yeah. And at this point I'd love to play my favorite clip from the episode which which I think you know it, it makes that reference as well. Howdy. I am a Texas cowboy. The year is 1830. You youngins ask me any questions you like. Can we play kickball instead of science after lunch? Kickball. Son, there ain't no kickball in 1830. Any other questions? Shoot, it's awfully quiet on the plains here. Well, how about this? Everybody, I want to see two eyes on every single person staring right at me right now. There are three things wrong with my costume. Anybody names those three things will get my hat. I believe I know the answer. Well, 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 what's your name? Lisa Simpson. Well, go ahead, Miss Simpson. Um, one. Your belt buckle says state of Texas, but Texas wasn't a state until 1845. Very good. <laughs> two. The revolver wasn't invented until 1835. That's excellent. Three. You seem to be of the Jewish faith. Are you sure I'm Jewish? Or Italian. I'm Jewish. And there weren't any Jewish cowboys. Very good. That's excellent. And I'm also wearing a digital watch, but I'll accept that. Here you go, little lady. And for the record, there were a few Jewish cowboys, ladies and gentlemen, big guys who were great shots and spent money freely. I'm Mr. Bergstrom. Feel free to make fun of my name if you want. Two suggestions are Mr. Nerdstrom and Mr. Boogerstrom. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there, like in his intro, that's like Dustin Hoffman at his peak. That's Dustin Hoffman like elevating the episode beyond what it kind of otherwise would be. And I think, you know, his, his writing is obviously fantastic, but I think his performance really takes that to the next level. Um, I've got one fact that I wanted to point to just to, you know, to, to kind of look like I'm, I know what I'm talking about. So don't take my word for it. The voice actress for, um, for Lisa Yardley Smith, uh, who says, you know, the couple of days she had in the recording booth uh, working with Dustin Hoffman, she says, she credits as elevating her vocal performance and kind of her, her skills as an actress um, in that session and well beyond as well. So that's the kind of talent I'm trying to say that, that, that the Simpsons managed to secure for this. Someone who not only makes the episode great, not only makes the character and the writing great, but also elevates those people that she's working with. And is just it just makes the episode right it didn't need this but this is what pushes it for me into this star power is what pushes it into like great work of art category nice nice all right cool well that's a valid point you may maybe you're swaying me maybe you're swaying me um i wanted to talk a little bit about um one of the reasons that i think this is um why i think it's a very good episode is i think it's surprisingly emotional it's really emotional when Mr. Bergstrom leaves. When you see Lisa's heartbreak, it's very, very innocent. She's just before when she walks into the classroom, waiting to um, to ask Mr. Bergstrom to the, to her family's house for dinner because Marge has said that they can invite Mr. Bergstrom to dinner because they'd had a, a history trip to the Natural History Museum and it didn't go that well. And so she's got a, a special bow in her hair and she's practicing all of these lines in the way that you would practice asking someone out or something like it's like her first um, really like emotional connection with someone. Like not only does she look up to him as a as a role model, as we've already mentioned, but in a sort of a crush kind of way as well. So 
she she's practicing her lines and then she opens the door and then Mrs. Hoover is is back. It turns out she didn't have Lyme's disease and that she, it was psychosomatic. And Which means she was crazy uh, and she was faking it. she was it. faking it. <laughs> or a little bit of both. Uh, that's, that's a line from the show, guys. <laughs> and uh, and and she's so heartbroken and she she runs out of the classroom and um then she goes to find where mr bergstrom lives and then she um she's yelling mr bergstrom mr bergstrom um and um a, a woman leans out and says oh no he's left and they share a moment where they basically both say this woman who lives in the same apartment building as mr bergstrom and lisa uh, basically share a moment where they've both both they both admit that they had a crush on him and that he was special. Um, and so anyway, he's getting on a train to go to Capital City because there's another school that needs him. There's another school that needs a substitute teacher. And she goes to the train station and she um, they have a really heartfelt conversation and he hands her a note um, and she doesn't open the note. And she says, if, if it's OK, I'm going to run along the track with you as the train leaves. And so she runs along the track in the sort of very, it's very melodramatic. It's over the top, but it's innocent. And you just, you really feel her heartbreak. Um, and then once the train is out of sight, she opens the note. The, his last words are, remember the note or something along those lines. And she opens the note and the note says, you are Lisa Simpson. And it's really simple and really, really sweet. And that it's really emotional, which is a lot for this, what, 22 minute episode. Um, and it's really, really lovely. Um, do you do you have any comments on that, Tay? Like, how do you feel like that kind of emotional side of things plays into this becoming a good episode or the greatest yeah. work of art, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, the plot, the A plot, Mr. Bergstrom plot, is driven by emotion, right? I, I say Bart's plot is driven by comedy, and you need a balance to that to make it a truly remarkable Simpsons episode, and it's not just comedy. And the emotion does come from Mr. Bergstrom, and obviously, you know, this scene is uh, kind of the culmination of that and it's it's for many people it's like the scene they take away from this episode or it's the one they remember um i don't know about you jess but you know, I've, I've seen this scene like over and over in clips and things and i even though i've seen this episode so many times like revisiting it now i hadn't watched it in a few years i forgot that there's actually more after this episode uh, after this mm. scene i thought it's this is what it ended on i thought it ended on almost the the kind of the still of the note of you are lisa simpson i felt the same um i don't know if it was a, a misremembering or if it just felt like a natural end that felt like the end of the episode like that's where it should end yeah but there's a lot more isn't there and like the note actually uh, an interesting fact about that um the writer of this episode john vitty um he when they were sending the scripts around he actually included a copy uh, a handwritten note that said you are lisa simpson um, really? Yeah, in 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 each person's script, in each cast member's script, and that, by all accounts, they were quite confused and were asking like, "What? <laughs> I'm Lisa Simpson. What's going on? Uh, what does he mean by this?" But it obviously made sense to them. That is a really poignant moment and a really beautiful moment that does kind of, you know, it's it's the cherry on top of this episode. It needs that moment that sticks with you. But one scene, that one thing in that scene that stood out to me, which not many people talk about really is when Mr. Bergstrom says something like, that's the problem with being middle class. Anyone who truly cares will leave you for someone who needs it more. 
And I think that's like so beautifully put and like just it's it's, it's almost like a throwaway line. Like it could be seen as a joke, but like it, it, it really stuck with me and it really made me think. And that like, again, is, is I would credit the writing. But again, I credit Dustin Hoffman's like ability to just like, you know, gently deliver a line that kind of sticks with you for longer than it otherwise might. Um, so there's, there's just like, nothing is wasted in his performance. And there's just like so many little things like that. Um, and especially in that the clip we played earlier, like when he went, I just love it when he barges in, like, I am a Texas cowboy, the year is 1830. You can ask me any question you want. Like, it's just like that delivery is so good. But anyway, back to the train scene, back to the emotion. So can Obviously, I just say, yeah, you, you're mentioning the smallest thing, but you're saying nothing is wasted and you're talking about Dustin Hoffman's performance. But actually, there's this really tiny bit after this scene where Homer goes up to Lisa's room and there's a go away sign on her door. And it's the smallest, tiniest little detail that Homer just reads under his breath. Go away. And I just <laughs> I thought that was every moment counts. And I think I thought it was funny and it was like silly and cute that he read out go away and it almost serves to emphasize the difference between him and it's really like literate mr bergstrom really educated and this guy who just reads out go away on a sign on a kid's door um and i thought really tiny minute details like that just really yeah. cleverly uh, help characterize them I, yeah i love that juxtaposition and also like it's, it's not like in, in support of that same argument but what was just really funny to me is when um, when Homer's in Lisa's room and, and he just doesn't understand. He's got like the emotional depth of, I don't know, like a, a teacup. And he says, uh, are you crying because you, 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 you shouted at daddy or something? And, and Lisa's just like, no. And it's just nuts. <laughs> like he was counting on that being, you know, his get out of jail free card that just maybe I've misunderstood. Maybe Lisa, Lisa's just upset because she shouted at me and he's like, nuts <laughs> yeah yeah a bit of a bit of context for that is that lisa was upset about mr bergstrom this is what tay was talking about the the second half of the of the scene yeah um, let's backpedal jess you tell him what happens so yeah after the scene you think that it ends on on this note you are lisa simpson but then after that there's a scene where they're at the dinner table and lisa is really upset and um homer I, I, Homer maybe asks, you know, like, why are you upset or whatever, or maybe he doesn't, maybe maybe it's Marge, because as Tay's already illustrated, he has the emotional capacity of a teacup, and um, essentially he, he basically says, you know, like, oh, I, I don't care why you're upset, um, or, you know, like, I under he, she said, you don't understand, he says, no, I understand, I just don't care, or something along those lines, and um, she says this really, she has this really powerful bit where she gets up from the table, and she says, um, I'm pleased that I'm not crying because that might mean that you think this is driven by emotional emotion and it's not. But you, sir, are a baboon. And then she just screams baboon at him and just calls him a, a baboon and a monkey. And um, then she runs upstairs crying. And then Bart has a brilliant line where he's like, well, I thought someone was going to say it eventually, but I didn't, didn't think it was going to be her. <laughs> which was funny. And Homer, um, Homer says that baboon is one of the smelliest, stupidest, ugliest ape of them all. <laughs> he's so offended by this. And it's, it's really funny. It's ridiculous her over, like the over-exaggeration, the melodrama of her shouting baboon at him. And then how offended he is that, that he's been called a baboon. And it's, yeah, the smelliest one there is. Um, and then he goes up to her room and that is where we pick up with what Tate was just saying. And... 
So this like we've we've talked a lot about the A plot and we've almost reached the culmination of it. We talked about you know what a brilliant character Mr. Bergstrom is, his entry into Lisa's life, their develop their relationship developing, and also um, kind of how how he leaves it with her and the fallout from that with Homer. Um, the end of the episode wraps everything up in quite a nice way. So what I want to do, if we can, Jess, is backpedal and talk a little bit about Bart's like entire plot line that's running the, kind of the undertone. Um, that, that helps keep up the pace of this episode and just talk about anything that stood out to you from there. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the, did we, were we recording when you mentioned the line about asbestos or was that in the kind of preamble? Oh, I don't know, but I mean, we should definitely bring it up because this was one of the first things I said to, to you, Tay, when, when we, when we, we got together to talk about this episode, um, (laughs) one of the very first things that stuck with me is that. It's it's it, it goes back to what you said about this being like a, uh, an example of a really great typical Simpsons episode. There are all of these lines in this sh- in this episode that are part of like memories of my childhood that I didn't even remember, but are in my brain somewhere. And one of them is that Bart and is running for class president against Martin, and Martin says something very reasonable about the school having asbestos, and we ought to get rid of the asbestos. And Bart, just being the anarchist that he is, just disagrees and says, no, we need more asbestos. In a sample taken in this very classroom, a state inspector found 1.74 parts per million of asbestos. That's not enough. We demand more asbestos. More asbestos. More asbestos. More asbestos. More asbestos. And he gets the entire class chanting, more asbestos, more asbestos. And that has completely stuck with me. And if for whatever reason I'm ever talking about asbestos, which doesn't happen very often, but when it does, in my head, Bart is chanting, more asbestos, more asbestos. Um, and that I, it's really funny. And the, 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 that B plot is really funny. Um, and that, that's an example of, yeah, like those kind of typical, like small Simpsons phrases that just are, are like wound within your 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 upbringing i suppose yeah. they're just they're just in there in your in your mind somewhere yeah like the quotes like that are like part of my dna at this point like it's just <laughs> it's just so hard to like that you don't even remember where they're from it just comes to you like yeah it's just like yeah. a natural response um but yeah like 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 you say you know bart is running for class president on this platform of just pure anarchy and even one of his posters like it's this what am i that's one of the most underrated shots in this episode. Like, maybe it's because it's a purely visual gag and doesn't translate well to maybe clips or sound bites. But Martin's rolling out his campaign poster on the wall, and it says, so it's, a, it's a poster attacking Bart, and it says, a vote for Bart is a vote for anarchy. And on the other side of the locker, Bart's unfurling the exact same poster, but just crudely handwritten, and it says, a vote for Bart is a vote for anarchy. And that's his selling point, right? He's He's... He's upsetting the establishment. He's throwing it in Miss Kabopel's face. He's driving poor Martin to, to almost his death. Uh, like later on, we see you know Martin shaking, pale white at his desk, just unable to comprehend how Bart's getting away with this. Which is, you know, I don't subscribe to this notion that The Simpsons predicted everything. Like I think it's just once you've pumped out thirty-three seasons worth of episodes. Um, at whatever, like 23 episodes a season, you're bound to kind of touch on a few cultural things that do come true. But one thing that kind of is quite eerie to me, and 
maybe I shouldn't be so surprised because people have done this in the past in history, but BART essentially stands on 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 uh, on a opposition platform um, that is kind of very reminiscent of of the 2016 presidential election, right? And I'm, I'm not the first person to have had this thought. Like I very much heard this on a different podcast, um, one that came out around 2016, um, but. It's it's like uncanny, like some of the parallels between how Bart's approach uh, and 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 his appealing to the lowest common denominator and kind of Trump's, you know, you could you could see Trump shouting more asbestos, more asbestos. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he basically did when he encouraged everyone to drink bleach. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, you're saying about the the prediction thing. Like, I love that sort of like eerie thing where where there was this farcical thing like a, a couple of years before. Trump even ran for president um, where where they, the Simpsons did an episode where Trump was president as um, like a weird future episode. I think it was. It was like, oh, imagine a world where Trump's president. And then that happened. Um, it's just what I think you're referring to about them predicting yeah. things. Yeah. And I, I really like this because it's obviously what, like 91. It's there's no way they were predicting that specifically. But it's just it shows you that like for me, it shows you that the writers had a real finger on the pulse of like of, of, of US politics even at the time because uh, there, there were people like Trump in the 90s I'm sure like saying the same thing they just yeah. weren't being listened to right yeah so just picking up on those vibes it was easy to like write a story like this and set it in a elementary school and turn it into humor and <laughs> before you know it that is, that is like our reality but yeah, just just an interesting one. You we talked about, like you said, does you know is the episode particularly culturally culturally relevant? I guess it is. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> so um, I guess unless that's if unless there's anything more you wanted to say about the B plot, I mean, other than the really great quote, which I find weirdly funny, and I don't know why, but it's when Miss Miss Krabappel is counting the votes. By the way, Martin wins because. Everyone cheers and is like, woohoo, Bart's won because we all like Bart, but then none of them vote. And it's almost like, a, I think it's almost like a poke at the anti-establishment because anyone who is like that, they think, oh, you know, you're not going to vote because you're anti-establishment, but also you want this anarchist to win. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it's, it, maybe it's a little bit, a bit obvious, a little bit silly, but um, it's, it's, you know, Bart is really upset that he, that he lost um, and Martin won and Miss Krabappel counts the votes and he goes one for martin two for martin let me count that again one for martin two for martin and yeah sorry terrible american accent there guys and bart being the trump that he is demands a recount right and and that's why that's why two votes that's why she does the let me count it again yeah he didn't even vote for himself um but anyway so yeah i don't know if there's anything more you wanted to talk about like the the b plot um, but if not, I'd I'd like to talk a little bit about um, what you touched on right at the beginning with Lisa's relationship with her father um, and how that is a, a big point of development for this episode. And I mean, one thing I wanted to raise was like this episode is called The Substitute, The Substitute Teacher, but it's not The Substitute Teacher, it's just The Substitute. And it's he's, he acts as a substitute father at some points she prefers him to her father she's embarrassed of her dad she's embarrassed of the way he acts uh, they go to the um, history museum together and you know he he acts like a child and he you know he embarrasses her 
Um, and it's it's really sad. Um, but you're right, it is a classic Lisa episode where she's embarrassed of her family. 100%, yeah. And he, Mr. Bergstrom even talks about it, right? Like, he, 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 he tries to have that conversation with Homer to put him onto the fact that, like, you know, I have noticed this, Lisa doesn't have any male role models, so you basically need to get your act together. And... I, I talked about uh, the the fact that this episode does so much more than like the the, the limits of its media. Unfortunately, one of those limits of uh, uh, the Simpsons is that at the end of the episode, everything has to go back to the way it was, right? Because you have to be able to watch all of these in in any order and and at whatever time, and it has to make sense as as with any sitcom. Um, so you you never truly believe that you know lisa and seems uh, lisa and homer are not going to have a good relationship at the end of this um but i think the way that the show kind of wraps it all up is really well done it's really well handled and it doesn't seem forced it doesn't seem rushed which is i think it's it's uh biggest strength in again working in the time constraint having packed so much in to the two plot lines like it would be really easy to uh, wrap everything up with a nice ribbon, as Homer would say. Uh, it, what is it? What's that quote? As a with a nice little ribbon <laughs> from a different episode. What's it from this episode? No, it's not from this episode. It's this like, episode. Oh, everything's wrapped up with a pretty little bow, or something. Anyway, <laughs> so I'll I'll find that episode. Well, but, if that wasn't a quote, I enjoyed it anyway. So, <laughs> but yeah, it would be really easy to force it and just rush it and. I don't think they do that at all. So picking up from where you left us, Jess, uh, Homer is in Lisa's room, uh, attempting to reconcile in 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 his own you know particular manner. Do you want to tell us kind of how it ends? Yeah, yeah. So Lisa's just called him a baboon. Um, then Marge makes him go upstairs and says, "There's a little girl up there who's whose confidence in her father has is shaken, and you need to go and fix this." So he goes upstairs. And he, you know, he steps on her doll's house and then he, he asks her, are you upset because you called daddy a monkey? And she goes, no. And he was like, nuts. Um, but then eventually um, he basically says, you know, there, there are other things that I'm good for. And like, you know, I can basically wraps it up by, by saying, you know, I can still be your dad um, and I can still mess around like a monkey. And he starts making monkey noises and he starts, you know, messing around and he picks her up and he hugs her and he's making ape noises and she starts laughing. And it's really beautiful because it's Lisa, who is eight, who has seen the outside world of a really um, cultured man who she really respects. And at the end, it's brought back to the fact that she is an eight year old girl and she's still a child. And this kind of love between her and her father is just, you know, it's 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 been built up her whole life and he can just mess around and play with her in his way that is not cultured, that is just silly, but she still loves him for it. And it's a really beautiful reconciliation. And they don't really talk about it. He just he just reverts to what he's you know, what how he has brought her up. And then after that he goes into Bart's room and comforts Bart for having lost the presidential election and says, oh, but you'd have to do more work. Isn't this better this way? Yeah, and he then... appeals to the slacker in him, which is, you know, Bart in every other episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, and then he goes into into Maggie's room and she's lost her her dummy, her pacifier. And, you know, he, he gives it back to her. And then 
he sees Marge and he's just like, I am on a roll. Like, this is the best parenting day of my life. I fixed all of my children's problems. Yeah, and it's really sweet. It's a really nice ending. He says he's three for three and <laughs> you know, gives himself the perfect rating. And I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and I, like, I think, you know, Homer does appeal to... He, he has one thing going for him throughout all of this. And it's that he is like Lisa's father. And like nothing will change that. And that relationship obviously like is just... It can take a lot of pressure before it cracks, and he just appeals to that same kind of the, the, the love that they have, the innate love they have for each other. And he says that you know you are really special to me, uh, and you are going to go on to do great things. And I'm sure there are many, many people who are going to think you're so special, and they're going to be so special to you, as Mr. Bergstrom was. But you know, Homer says he's very lucky, essentially, to have her in his life, and that everyone special to him is under this roof. And he, you know, wraps it up very nicely by doing a tour of all those people and just having a really touching um, moment with them. Yes. And it just, it's just like, it's like the perfect scene to zoom out of like the Simpsons house on, right? And yeah. it's just like that, that is the family like stories that the Simpsons is trying to, yeah. that Simpsons is trying to tell, which yeah. is just incredible. And this episode is incredible. <laughs> and you should all watch it. Yeah, if like if you haven't, like I don't think, you know, I'm not really spoiling. It. If you if you really consider, Shit, have we spoiled the it? fact that I'm spoiling, <laughs> like talking about this as a spoiler for an episode from 1991, like you know, you really should have watched it by now. Um, and yeah, I would recommend obviously going back and watching the episode if you do have the spare 24 minutes. Um, I don't think you'll regret it. I have I have one last thing to challenge you on. Um. You mentioned, um, like, particularly Lisa's story arcs often being to do with her family, and I really like that observation. Over the, what, you know, 30 years, plus years, that The Simpsons has been going on, Lisa is always eight, Bart is always ten. How can Lisa develop as a character if every episode she starts again, and every episode she has these storylines? Does she develop? Maybe she develops like incrementally. Do you think she does? Do you think that that if she doesn't, then these episodes are a waste of time? They're a little bit like too self-contained. What do you think about that? That's a great point. Um, and it is definitely like you know this this The Simpsons has a lot of strengths. Um, it's kind of the stories it's able to tell and the freedom that it has to follow kind of wacky narratives and also really emotional ones. Um, and, and the star power that it's able to bring in now, but it does always have that limitation that, you know, it, things are going to work out. Um, yeah. There have... Marge always gets back to back together with Homer, however ridiculous he is, and always. however much she wants to leave him, she always gets back together with him. Always. You get the, you know, you get the odd thing that carries over, like, you, you even get the odd, like, all-encompassing uh, and a storyline that's referred to many years later, like the Who Shot Mr. Burns storyline, right? That was a big event. Uh, complete tangent. I saw a picture recently. There was Vegas odds for Who Shot Mr. Burns when that episode came out. So if, for anyone who doesn't know, yeah, in I think, is it season five, six, I don't know. One of the season finales of The Simpsons, I promise I'm going to get back to your question. One of the season finales uh, is is there's an episode called Who Shot Mr. Burns Part 1 uh, in which, unsurprisingly, Mr. C. Montgomery Burns uh, gets shot by an, an unnamed, unknown assailant. Uh, and then the episode ends on a cliffhanger um, of, of police 
Chief Wiggum going, you know, who shot Mr. Burns? Was it you? And then the season ends, cut to black, and, you know, you have to wait a whole year for the next uh, the, the next season and the culmination of that episode in Who Shot Mr. Burns Part 2. And Las Vegas was taking bets on on who, on who it was. And that is incredible to me. It's so funny when I saw that. Um, I wonder if anyone won anything. I, I, I looked at the odds and, like, the, I won't say who it was in case there is anyone who doesn't do, know. Do people not know? Oh god, like so afraid of spoilers. But um yeah, you could get great odds. I think it was literally like 200 to 1 for the correct person. Oh. Um in fact the tweet I saw about it was have you seen uncut gems, Jess? No. No. Okay, never mind. Um it was basically like, oh, the plot of that movie, but someone should go back to whatever year it was and just put a huge bet on on X person to to win and then, you know, make out like a bandit. Anyway, so <laughs> what was I even saying? Uh, we were talking about how everything goes back to normal at the end of each episode. Everything goes back, apart from certain plot lines which do carry through. I think Lisa actually, for a for like you know compared to other characters, actually has quite a few of those. She the the Lisa the vegetarian one being the biggest one, right? She takes a huge character development step um, in, in becoming a vegetarian, and that carries through immediately from the next episode until today. So that's a big development. Musically, she develops a lot. Uh, so there's, you know, a couple of story arcs with, obviously, you know, Lisa is a huge fan of, of, of the saxophone. She's very accomplished in it. It's in the opening sequence, if you didn't know. She, you know, she plays the saxophone. Uh, and she has a couple of development arcs with a character called Bleeding Gums Murphy, who's this really, you know, cool uh, jazz saxophonist um, and who who is, is a bit of a role model, is a bit of a Mr. Bergstrom character. Uh, for Lisa as well and through kind of her interactions with him and again spoilers his untimely passing Lisa does develop and grow and get like a better grounding as a character um, and, and especially when it comes to kind of her music and there's a lot of episodes later on which which are tied to uh, Lisa's musical ability uh, episode that comes to mind Lisa's sax in which we find out how she actually ended up getting it so I think Lisa is one of the characters who has probably some of the you know most frequent callbacks to her development, um, and certainly she's one of like you know my favorite characters in, in terms of how much she grows. And I wouldn't want to discount like the growth in an episode just because it happens in a you know in a, in a, in, a, in a microchasm and it's just like it's for twenty minutes. She goes through an arc, and at the end she comes out essentially the same person. As a viewer going through those seasons, like if you were like me and you, Jess, you know, and, and kind of grew up with Lisa, like you are seeing her develop. Like she, maybe every episode they're not referring back to, oh, remember that time Mr. Bergstrom told you like you are Lisa Simpson? But what about when you, you know, in one of those f uh, flash forward episodes, you know, Lisa's wedding? That's another one of my favorite episodes yeah. when we, when Homer gets to see into the future and see uh, what his family is like. Like Lisa's getting married she's a very accomplished kind of uh, i think she's an academic um and as a viewer like you're able to tie back that to maybe experiences and developments she's had in the past it doesn't necessarily have to be the writers holding your hand and telling you like remember when she did that this is a direct result of that like you as a viewer you're able to carry things through even if they aren't able to refer back to it or have everlasting consequences at the end of every episode with her yeah Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. You've persuaded me. <laughs> but I mean, I, I want to know, Jess. Like, 
what do you think of this episode as a whole? Like, where does it stack for you in terms of your favorite Simpsons episodes? Like, what is your favorite Simpsons episode? What just any kind of closing thoughts? What stood out to you? What stood out to me in this episode was um, that is an early season one, and it's really like cementing a lot of things that we now know about those characters. Like, you know, the classics like Eat My Shorts appears and, you know, like some classic Bart sort of messing around, like really, really kind of like early days gentle messing around um, where he's just like blowing his face up against the glass in the classroom and stuff. Like it's not like him being completely wild like he is in some of the later episodes and that kind of thing. And like cementing the, that and what I mentioned before about some of those quotes um, in that sense, that's that's what I took away from this episode is just being like a really solid example of one of those good establishing episodes um I wouldn't say it's my favorite episode I do like I do like the the episodes which have cameos and I do like I I do actually quite like Lisa episodes a lot maybe I identify with Lisa because uh because I like music and I like bloody school I loved school (laughs) um but yeah I, I couldn't I don't actually know what my favorite episode is um I'll have to have a think about it and get back to you but I'd say probably something, one of those middling episodes um, that you mentioned. The middling seasons. Yeah, sorry, the middling seasons, mm. the golden era. They're hard to beat. Okay, well, I think I've said all I can say. And yeah. I'm, you know, I'm realistic that this is not going to be an episode for anyone, everyone. But what I, what I do want to leave you on is that if you've always viewed The Simpsons as just... And I, I, I don't know if I'm speaking to anyone here who is in this position because I think everyone you know the Simpsons is a culturally accepted thing now you know people accept mm-hmm. that it was great it had a huge impact um but if there is anyone who views it as kind of like nothing more than a children's cartoon or you know would kind of they wish which this was the case in my household for a while you know would deter their children from watching it because it's crude or because it's got this that or the other and it's just you know a waste yeah. of time I, I, I remember that I remember having a family friend um, who's uh, same age as my parents, kids same age as me, wouldn't let their kids watch The Simpsons yeah. because it was it was like it's the same as like not letting them eat the blue M and M's. It was a uh, outrageous, blue yeah, completely outrageous. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, yeah, you're right. So you're right. it was a cultural thing. I would say like if you if you're one of those people or if you never had the chance to watch this or if you never grew up on it and have always been curious, like this is a good place to start. Yeah. This is up there. Like it's a it's a great encapsulation of what makes The Simpsons brilliant. It's got superstar power behind it, and it treads that fine line between kind of like emotional storytelling centered around the family and, and, and things that everyone can relate to, and also outlandish humor, which The Simpsons is known for. So if you've listened to this this far, you're probably intrigued a little bit so just go watch it if you haven't and if you have watched it thank you for paying attention that was my argument jess what do you think well you've you've you, by summing up you've left me like a really like warm and fuzzy feeling for the simpsons in general um i would argue that i don't think this episode would make it into the list but that in general the simpsons as a series could okay contentious okay. can i put that on a maybe list you could, you could, yeah, of course. You could. I mean, there's no one else here, so it's between me and you to hash this out. <laughs> I mean, so which what, do we go for on the what, list or in the bin? What, 
What do you think it's missing to push it? Like, I'm, I'm willing to put it in the bin. Like, not everything can be in the list. And I'm totally fine with it going in the bin. What do you think it's missing? Like, we haven't talked about what would elevate it for you to be a great work of art. Good question. I don't know. There we have it, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I really I'm thought just... I'd have something clever to say. <laughs> um, you know, maybe that answers itself. It's got a it's got a surprising amount of depth for such a, a short a short episode. Oh, go on then. Fine, we'll put it on the list. Fine. I I don't think it's gonna win at the end, but you <laughs> okay. Know, maybe I won't be I able love to it. Change my mind. Um, 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 if you could, you know. Mail me your 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 strongest argument against, and we'll maybe reconsider taking it off the <laughs> list first at the end. But I don't know. For now, are we in agreement? Yeah, let's let's put it on the list. Let's keep it. Okay. Thank you. And on that point, let me play you out with this clip. Holy moly! Talk about parenting. Uh oh. Sleep well, Maggie. <laughs> three for three. Homie, did you straighten up? Yep, 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 yep. Don't say anything, Marge. Let's just go to bed. I'm on the biggest roll of my life. And now for a segment we like to call Art of the Week. Jess, I can't remember if what your preamble was for this last week, but uh, basically, this is a chance to just discuss something that we did or we saw or we thought was cool this week or last week. Um, it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be well thought out. And with that in mind, Jess, do you want to tell us what your art of the week was? Yeah, sure. So this week I've been looking a lot at fonts. Um, don't ask me why. And I've come across this thing which is called a variable font. And a, a variable font is a font that, rather than just having one font weight, like, you know, uh, light or black or bold, you download a font file that has all of those weights and all of the possible possibilities in between those two weights all contained within the same font file. And alongside that, you have a second axis. And the second axis might be like the width of the font, so how close together the letters are. And so variable fonts, you can basically create a font that has two different axes. And I think this is a really cool idea. And it's, it's a way that, you know, people who work with fonts can, you know, use fonts in a more flexible way and don't have to download loads of font files when they want to use those fonts. But there is a font called Illicit Scripts by uh, Laura Worthington and Jim Wasco. And um, the way that this font uh, vary, varies itself or varies variates i don't know what that word is um is in weight so you know it can either be really dark and thick and black or it can be really thin and light but the other way it varies itself in is in its casualness and i thought that the axis of casualness is the coolest thing which basically the way they do this is that in some variations there's a really thick line like it's been written by a sharpie and in others it's um, it becomes really thin, like it has been written by a calligraphy pen. And there is an, 
they imagine this font between the two points of something like a Sharpie versus a calligraphy pen and all of the possibilities in between. And it goes from really casual and informal to really like smart and, you know, really posh. And I thought that was a really cool idea. And so that's my art of the week. Sorry, that's a little bit strange. But, you no, know, got look, up, look, look up variable fonts. It's really cool. I've got questions. Like, what's, what's the use case for that? Is it to stop? Is it basically so you don't have to buy as buy and license as many fonts that you can license this license this one font and get a lot more use out of it a lot more customization out of it yeah so there's a couple of use cases the first is that you could exactly you could you could license or, or buy the font and then you only have to download one font file whereas often when you buy a font you get all of the combinations in separate font files so you might have to download 60 files and then you have to manage 60 files and when you want to like activate a font on, you know, your whatever Adobe program you're using, you then have to want think, oh, do I want to activate, you know, Helvetica Black or Helvetica Super Light or, you know, and they're all separate files. So that's one use case. And the second is that um, if you're using this on a website, it um, it speeds up the loading times because the browser only needs to like load one font file as opposed to loads of different ones. So if you're using a website that's got that same font but just in different variations then there's only one font to load um so that's that's the use case and also it gives you more flexibility if you you know want something a little bit thicker than bold but not so thick as the next weight or you know you want to expand the width of your your sentence to fit just perfectly between these two lines you can do that and you don't have to be restricted to like the you know nine regular widths that you normally get so you know it's it's quite a specific use case but i thought it was quite cool that's a revelation is it could you use that in word like those plain old words support that it doesn't i don't think um yeah so it's something that's kind of being adopted by specific programs and things like that but yeah i i think that it's going to so i was watching um I was watching a video of this person who was presenting at Adobe Max about variable fonts. And he was saying that this is one of the things, it was so extreme. It was like, this is one of, historians are going to look back at this and say that this is going to change. Uh, this is going to be seen as a, a point in which fonts fonts will never be the same will change i know like to the to the extent when you no longer had to actually physically typeset but you could you know things were digital like that was an actual thing and i was just like well that's an extreme ch- an extreme claim but you know maybe so that's what um, we have the the what the printing press the the home computer and then variable fonts as the milestones for fonts and typography. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So, yeah, so that was my art of the week. A little bit nerdy and a little bit specific. Um, But but go on, Tay. Tell me about yours. That's cool. Yeah. um, Yeah, so this past week I went to London. It was wonderful. Thank you all for asking. Um, I went to... London, (laughs) Tay. No, no, Jess, we've already (laughs) talked about this. Off, off recording. Don't even feign interest. Um, you know it was good. Uh, so yeah, I went to London. Actually, one of you know, probably the highlight from London was going to Harry Potter Studios for the very first time. Um, yeah. And then you know we had dinner. That was lovely. And yeah. and and the following day, I went to the old Royal Naval College in Greenwich. 
and that was spectacular. But the, the whole thing isn't my art of the week. It's one very specific part of it, perhaps the most famous part, and that is the Painted Hall. So the Painted Hall uh, at the Old Royal Naval College is, uh, is, is, you know, unsurprisingly, it is a hall. It is the architectural centerpiece of Maritime Greenwich. Uh, it's had many, many purposes in the past. But what kind of stood out to me and what set this apart is obviously the, the, the fact that it is painted. It's, it's a huge mural uh, across the whole ceiling as well as the, uh, the entrance wall and the very back of the hall as well. And it is extremely detailed, extremely... I don't know. It's, it's, it's clear it was a painstaking undertaking and I just... I loved it. I couldn't stop taking photos of it. They've done that, you know, really, really appreciated thing where they've actually put mirrors in the floor and kind of a chest height so you don't have to crane your neck and be staring at the <laughs> hole the whole time and get arthritis in your neck. Um, and so it was a really enjoyable experience, a really kind of marvelous thing to see. Uh, dare I say, it blew the Sistine Chapel out the water. Like the Sistine yeah, Chapel- That is a bold claim. Is cool. But it was extremely underwhelming when I went. Like, not only was it absolutely crowded and was rammed, they didn't let you take photos. And when you look up, it is so small. Like, it is so yeah. far up. It's can't. It's it's not quite a postage stamp, but it's getting there. I suppose um, the Sistine Chapel was painted a lot earlier and by someone a lot more famous. But yeah. I do one hundred percent see your point because I have been to the Old Royal Naval College and it is incredible and. Like not many people in there either, and yeah, that's, it, that's is, the thing. it is incredible. The style is is sort of similar in, to the Sistine Chapel, isn't it? It's uh, that kind of um, I don't know what you'd call that style, just like kind of like <laughs> classical painting type yeah. style. It's not quite um, Renaissance; it's post Renaissance, but post -Renaissance. Yeah, classical. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's it's very busy and colourful, and yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, and um, you know, just on that point, just because it's painted by someone else more famous you know he was slacking <laughs> like he was clearly resting on his laurels <laughs> yeah he got other people to to paint to paint yeah. things for him he was like money I learned, in the bag i learned a, a, a good fact about sistine chapel i'm sorry how are we going off on tangents on no, this is good week? this is good but um oh, no. uh, the for the sistine chapel um michelangelo painted himself into the sistine chapel and it's the only um thing that they think that it's the only portrait that they have I think or, or at least the only thing that he's ever painted himself into but the figure that he has painted himself as there is this on the on the wall of the Sistine Chapel there is someone holding um like a flayed skin um of someone who's come from hell or purgatory or something so it's literally just a skin and the skin is is supposedly um a, a self-portrait of Michelangelo Sounds about right cool. for the location and time period, to be quite frank. Uh, <laughs> but then another interesting thing, Sir James Thornhill, who was the artist for that hall, he also painted himself in uh, into the into the mural right at the end of the hall where it's actually him with his hand kind of outstretched behind his back as if, you know, like the, our tour guide said, it's as if he's asking for more money because apparently he was severely underpaid for this commission. Ooh. But, uh, and he had to provide all his own materials, which is laughable. But um, yeah, he's I love there. That as a final middle finger. Yeah. Like, I painted this beautiful hall for you, but also. Why, yeah, you know, why I'll don't you pay me? I'll always be here reminding you that you underpaid me. I, I heard the monarch actually said, we're going to pay you an exposure. He was following the Instagram influencer <laughs> model. Yeah. But, um, 
that was great. Uh, much better than the Sistine Chapel. And I'm going to leave you on a final fact. Sir James Thornhill and Michelangelo, you know, contrary to popular belief, actually both painted the entire ceiling standing up, not lying down, as is commonly accepted fact, but they didn't. And that's what our tour guide said, and he was a tremendous chap, and I will take him at face value on that. <laughs> that's cool. been it. Well, great. Thanks so much, Tay. I really enjoyed your um, your art of the week, and I really enjoyed your, your episode, your argument for the Simpsons episode this week. And um, yeah, I've had a great time chatting with you about it. Awesome. Jess, do you want to tell the people what you're going to be talking about in two weeks' time? What is your next topic? Right, guys. Um, I have not come up with a topic yet. You know, you've got to tune in to find out, guys. That's purely because you have a, you know, an abundance of ideas that you're filtering through at the moment. Oh, yeah, 100%. That's exactly it. I have so many ideas. I just don't, I'm paralyzed by choice. Perfect. I will leave a tease and say that episode four, the one following your one, will be something else that I saw on my trip to London that, you know, truly, truly, I believe, stands as a greatest work of art. So look forward to that. Well, it, was, it was great to have everyone here today. Yeah, see you next time. All right. Thanks, everyone. And here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. Jesus loves you more than you will know. Whoa, whoa, whoa. God bless you, please, Mrs. Robinson. Do you know all the words to the Stonecutters song? We do. <laughs> we do. Who holds back, back the, the electric car? Who, who makes, makes Steve Gutenberg a star? We do. We do. We do. <laughs> yeah. Was that recording at all? Because that was possibly the worst. <laughs> that, that was recording. That was. That. Oh, my Christ. Yeah.